Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello and welcome to episode 235 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Karsten Vogt, a former member of the Bundestag, which is the German federal parliament with the SPD party from 1976 until 1998. Karsten is a former coordinator of German-North American cooperation at Germany's foreign office and a former SPD foreign policy spokesman. Karsten is also the author of Religion and Politics in the United States and Germany and is a former president of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Karsten, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I hope you as well. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? I've all my life been working in the field of public interest, but for the time being I'm just writing an article about the consequences for Europeans and Germans, especially of the elections in the United States, I mean, of the Trump administration. And uh, on the other side, I've uh, finished a longer article, which will be published next month, in the Latvian uh, specialized uh, uh, journal on, uh, on Russia and its Russia's foreign policy. Interesting. So right now you are trying to communicate directly with the uh, with the general population about the consequences of the Trump administration in Europe. How, I guess, uh, what are some of the consequences of the current administration in Europe? How is Europe reacting to the current American administration? And naturally we focus on other items uh, com- uh, than Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, it's important that um, uh, Trump has a relatively negative view on, uh, on the European Union, if he understands it, mm-hmm. which I I don't take as a given, but uh, if he has uh, softened some of his statements, but we have to assume that he is neither fully understanding the working of the European Union nor is he very supportive for it. And when he travelled uh, to Europe, he uh, went uh, to uh, to Poland, which is known to be very sceptical about further integration inside the European Union. Mm-hmm. So this European Union aspect is for us uh, very important. In the US, uh, many people discuss uh, the NATO aspect. Uh, there I'm also concerned, but not to the same degree as on the European Union aspect. In general terms, uh, the style of his language, the way in which he is appealing to, polit- uh, to the population, reminds most Germans not of something which we have in Parliament, but uh, of something which uh, is uh, running now for Parliament, meaning a right-wing populist group which is called Alternative for Germany. Yeah, so you have a group in Germany. I guess there have been different... You've lived through many different types of Germany. You've lived through a Germany uh, divided, a Germany at war, a Germany in a Cold War, and a reunified Germany. You've had uh, experience with socialist uh, governments and with... uh, You were born during a fascist government. Uh, Are there any parallels at all, or are there any warning signs or dangers? Should anyone be worried about the trajectory of uh, current American leadership, or is all of that a bunch of hype without any substance behind it? I'm I'm not going to compare uh, elements of German history with this specific uh, U.S. administration. I think this would not be uh, correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, what was a major... uh, 
assumption with Germans naturally because of their history have is that you always have to fight for democracy and you have to fight anti-democratic elements very early on because if you don't do it from the very outset it might be too late later I would not say that this is applicable in the United States today mm-hmm. but it explains some of the German reactions because the way in which Trump is dealing with with Congress and and with how he's dealing with courts and how he's directly appealing to masses thereby circumventing in a certain way the, Ameri- the traditional American institution is reminding whether correct or not correct mm-hmm. many elements of something which in many European countries we have had in the 20s and later on the 30s. Again, this is not identical what you find in the US. Uh, it might not be similar, but you cannot be surprised that many Europeans see it with the eyes of their history and not with the eyes of American history. And uh, Americans normally tend to uh, think that uh, their democracy is so stable that it is not endangered anyhow. Right, but it seems as though you're trying to convey that to have a sustainable democracy, constituents must be continually vigilant, uh, and their leaders must always try to create connections between the government and the constituency. In fact... You once said that if you're no longer able of uh, capable of explaining what's going on in government to constituents, then you ought to resign. Can you speak for a moment about the work that you've done in, in foreign policy on behalf of Germany, also in light of your need to be responsive to your constituents and how you're able to bridge uh, Germany's foreign interests with international relations with the very real domestic needs of a largely blue-collar constituency that you maintained in uh, Frankfurt am Main in uh, central uh, Germany? That was always a big challenge, and I did not always manage it, because I was always specialized in foreign policy and security policy issues, and naturally my electorate was more interested in local issues, regional issues, and uh, national issues. Mm-hmm. And most of them were interested in social issues and cultural issues and law and order issues, but not so much in international issues. Issues. Once they were interested in international issues uh, because of an international crisis, they, unlike me, then always uh, uh, were uh, getting very simplified answers and were challenging my position, which were, was always very nuanced in, with their really simplified answers. But anyhow, I, it was a complicated challenge, but I managed it for more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. So what do you, so I guess, how were you able to speak to constituents? You said that Germany has a very unique history of being greatly impacted by international relations. Of course, most, all countries are impacted by international relations, but Germany in particular in the 20th century and the 19th century had uh, borders that were constantly shifting and uh, external actors that were influencing policy within Germany. Uh, you would think that of any country, Germany would be a country where Germans would really understand the implications of international policy on d- domestic situations and and, uh, and their own inter- direct lives. Was that so? Are you saying it was still difficult, or how were you able to, I guess, use German history in order to, I guess, convey to your constituency that you were still able to advocate for their interests in the in the Bundestag, even though you are working largely on international issues? I think. It's obvious that German 
the German electorate might be more interested in international relations than the normal American electorate. Mm -hmm. uh, this is because of our history and our geostrategic situation. We are surrounded by many, many countries, mm -hmm. and many of them, these countries have been occupiers on our soil, and Germans have very often been occupiers on their soil. So we cannot decouple German history and uh, with uh, from the history of uh, of the history of our neighbors. Mm -hmm. So the German national history is always intertwined with European history, and uh, this is something which the electorate normally also understands. We have therefore a relatively strong, compared with other countries, strong pro-European movement inside and sentiment inside Germany. But what is difficult naturally for many people to understand when conditions are changing. And uh, conditions were changing in my lifetime several times, first with the end of uh, World War II, then the beginning of uh, the Cold War, the building of the wall, and in 89 with the fall of the wall. And it took quite a while before the Germans understood that the fall of the wall, the end of the East-West conflict, is, uh, was changing their geostrategic situation and also their conditions in which they could put, under which they could pursue German politics. Now, I would say that uh, because of the changes in Russia and because of new threats coming from the Middle East, international terrorism, for example, immigration rage, uh, that uh, because of that, our geostrategic position is changing again, not so abrupt, not in one moment, but over a period of time. And this is very difficult to explain this. They have a sentiment of insecurity, but it's very difficult to explain these change and what they mean and how you should react to a normal member of, uh, of uh, the electorate. So you mentioned uh, this concept of European history, and I'm wondering how new of a concept that is, especially uh, not as an academic concept, but as a concept that Germans would identify with, that European history, that they are part of European history, and that they are, in fact, Europeans. Obviously, the European economic community began in the 1950s, and now you have the European Union, which is uh, coming on 20 years old already, uh, from the early 21st century. But this concept of European history and a European identity, is it new, or does it have deeper roots? The intellectual and cultural debate of this uh, European history started uh, already in the 19th century. And uh, in a certain way, uh, this whole concept of the Christian Armland was a concept of European identity, not a, a concept of national identity. Uh, nation states are, came much later than European history started. Uh, but uh, naturally, this has uh, changed dramatically in direction of uh, European identity in the last decades. I would not say that national identity has been replaced by European identity, but national identity has been, uh, uh, there has been an element which has been added to national identity, and this is European identity. It's vague, it's controversial, as all issues of uh, identity are very often controversial and vague, mm -hmm. and they are changing over time, and there are always an element of dispute and controversy. Now, there is an evolving sense, as in any country, but especially now in Germany, of what it is to be German. As you have an influx of refugees from North Africa and the Middle East, um, there are there's varying degrees of support uh, for the European Union ar around Germany. You mentioned the rise of the new alternative party, which is uh, more anti-EU and anti-immigration. How are you? How would you say that the 
identity of Germans is evolving within the context of the European Union and changing demographic patterns within the state of Germany? It's changing. German identity is changing, and German identity is different from the identity which uh, I had and many others had in the 50s. And this will go on, and this is quite normal in the process, not only due to um, uh, the immigration from non-European countries, but also due to the immigration from other European countries. And uh, I, for example, in my own family, we have much more intermarriage with, uh, with uh, non-Germans. Uh, some of them are Europeans and some of them are non-Europeans than we had in the 50s and before. So this is uh, a slow process. Uh, not in some quarters of Germany, not very much is changing. This is especially in the, uh, in the, in the, on the countryside. Therefore, on the countryside and where you have a high unemployment, Therefore, why should people emigrate to such an area? So they are more traditional Germans, and uh, it's, therefore it's not quite surprising that you have also more reluctance in these areas to accept new Germans, as we call them, and with different culture, with different language background, and with different ethnicity. Now, different... No, no, but this isn't necessarily a new problem for Germany. In fact, in your youth, when you first became politically active, there were an influx of refugees from the GDR. Uh, so you've had many different periods of time where there have been refugee crises in Germany. Can you, is there, could you compare and contrast the experience that Germany had, uh, one, uh, well, the Federal Republic of Germany in absorbing these refugees and then reunification where the Federal Republic had to absorb the GDR uh, and how that may be similar to or different from the current context where Germany is absorbing refugees from non-German nations. Um, I would add one additional element. Directly after uh, World War II, we had between 10 and uh, 13 million refugees uh, from the former German areas in East Germany, which are now Polish or which are Czech or which are uh, were living in other East European countries. And then afterwards, in addition to that, we took uh, roughly uh, 3 million people from the GDR, and 50% of my school comrades uh, were uh, refugees uh, of, uh, from the former GDR. And after 1990, we took between 2 and 3 million people uh, from the former Soviet Union, many of them with uh, German-Russian backgrounds, those who were emigrating in 100 or 200 years before to Russia and now came back, uh, roughly 200,000 with Jewish background and many people with a purely Russian or Ukrainian background. So this is an ongoing process. And, but what is new now is that we have um, in a relatively sizable immigration uh, coming not only from Turkey, but also from uh, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, even from Morocco. And uh, they behave in different ways. They have a different cultural background. Uh, the role of the women is very different from the role of, uh, in our society. The role of uh, religion plays, uh, is played out in a different way in their home countries. So the uh, process of integration is not easy, it's very complicated. Also combined with many conflicts, the population is divided. In Germany, uh, we have as many people who reject those newcomers as we have people who uh, are engaged in supporting them. So this is a controversial issue and will be a controversial issue also, also, uh, also over the next years. 
So immigration seems to be an incredibly complex issue uh, that has a long history throughout the, your lifetime in Germany. Uh, speaking about your lifetime, I'd like to transition to how you originally got involved. You first were a youth committee, uh, you were a chairman of the Young Socialists. Uh, you originally got involved in politics and stood for election in 1969, and then you ended up waiting. You lost an election, your first election. And you ended up waiting seven years before you were finally able. <laughs> I mean, that's a long period of time before you're finally able to ascend to the Bundestag, uh, replacing a former defense minister. So, can you speak about how you originally got involved in politics, how you had the patience to wait seven years, and and I guess uh, how that led to. The, the lofty roles that you later were able to hold uh, representing Germany? I started even earlier. I started my first demonstrations as when I still was in, in school and at the age of 16, 17. And I organized demonstrations or participated in demonstrations. I was at that time very active in the Protestant youth movement. And the Protestant youth movement in my hometown was left-leaning. So it was, so to say, a pretext to my uh, later membership in the Social Democratic Party and uh, as a chairman of the Young Socialists. Uh, when you uh, are active in politics, you have need to have uh, the, the self-confidence and the, the capability of uh, fighting for a long term. And this you only can do when you uh, are committed. Either some people are committed because they want a job, others are committed because they want to change something. I belong to the later group. So my idea was uh, to, uh, to change Germany in a democratic direction, to make it a peaceful country. And uh, uh, you never should forget that I have still some war memories and that my teachers at school, some of them have been former Nazis. So, and so far I didn't take... Uh, uh, democracy as a given in Germany, as being guaranteed. So I want to stabilize democracy and I want to, to, be German, uh, to make Germany simple for peace policy. And this is uh, how I started. And then I was running in, my, uh, in this constituency against our Ministry of Defense. This was at that time quite a scandal in the German press. I failed, uh, but I got one third of the vote, which was uh, for a young uh, student or a young professional at the age of 27, 28, quite a lot. And after a couple of years, I became so strong inside the primaries that uh, the uh, uh, minister decided not to run in that constituency anymore, and I took over his constituency. What is different from the US? Hi. I never asked for money. I never got money. And my campaign was always financed via public funds or via funds coming from uh, the, the party, so I didn't have to raise uh, money for my personal campaign. And do you think, having had great experience both in the United States and in Germany, how do you think fundraising compromises or changes a campaign? What do you think your campaign lacks since you never had to ask for money, or what do you think that, uh, that American elections are hampered, hamstrung by because politicians do need to fundraise? Funds, and, but it's not illegal. I personally never did it, and I didn't need to do it. But this has to do how election campaigns are financed, how you get access uh, with your campaign to public TV. So the conditions of political work are very different in the US and in, in, in Germany. So I, it's difficult to compare. But when I was 
was meeting many people in Congress, especially many House members who have to run every second year. They are very much preoccupied with fundraising. Mm -hmm. They're simply preoccupying them a lot. And uh, I think uh, I would be very hesitant to be active in such a campaign if I would have to be so much concerned about fundraising as it is the case in the United States. Now, on the topic of money, uh, and again, on the topic of continuing, your, you had to wait for seven years to, to become a member of the Bundestag. You, were you involved as a theater manager? You had a, a backup plan in order to build a career simultaneous to politics? I ask because it's such a, uh, a unique problem facing those individuals who seek to have political careers is that you need to have a backup career. If Most people, if they want to become a physician or if they want to become a plumber, let's go ahead and do that. But here with politicians, you need to have a parallel career. Were you? Do you think that there ought to be uh, full-time politicians? Do you think it should be something that's only temporary? Uh, and how were you able to manage uh, personally and financially while you were, a- while you were waiting uh, to try to get into elected office? While I was waiting, I was uh, in the leadership of the Frankfurt Adult Education Institution. There I got my money, my salary from. Mm-hmm. And they were relatively tolerant in accepting that I had to uh, sometimes to leave the job and to be active in political life. Uh, but um, uh, we have the problem in Germany as well that uh, you need a backup uh, job while you are running. Uh, and uh, when you are in Parliament, we have a legal situation that if you are, have been hired by a private company or if you have been in public service, that uh, in legal terms, when you are kicked out of Parliament, you have the right to return to your old job. Hmm. So this is a legal right. This naturally does not solve uh, the problem of self-employed people because they can only turn back to their own company or to another uh, job in the private industry. But insofar as normal companies are concerned, uh, public offices are concerned, uh, they, they are preserved for the time while you are in, in public service in Parliament and you, get, you have the right to go back to these jobs after you are left leaving Parliament. Now, you mentioned that the reason you wanted, you were able to fight for a long-term period of time was you wanted to change something. And among those things you wanted to change was you wanted to make Germany more democratic and more peaceful. Now, I know in the 1990s, towards the end of your term in elected office, you had difficulty garnering support for uh, in German intervention in the Bosnia-Serbia uh, uh, conflict in the Balkans. Can you speak a little bit about the difficulties you had standing up to your colleagues in your party, the SPD, uh, in trying to generate support for intervention in what, in what some called, uh, well, indefinitely in a bunch of massacres, and what some called uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide. I mean, this is a very complicated issue because the tradition, the deep instinct of Germans after World War II was, let us not become part of the problem again by not interfering. So if we are attacked by the Soviets, uh, we defend ourselves, but we do not act uh, outside our uh, outside the borders of our countries on our own. If we do it later on, and this is still the case, and only in, as part of an international mission. And so Germans were concerned about n- as to not become a problem of g- again. And with this intervention, it was not the problem whether this ethnic cleansing was taken uh, uh, was taking place by Germans, 
but it was the problem where the Germans should take part in a mission to protect others against ethnic cleaning. So it was changing the perspective from being part of the problem and stopping to be part of the problem to becoming part of the solution by protecting others against ethnic cleanings or against an outside attack. This is a deep psychological change. It had also consequences for the structure of our armed forces, but it, it more important, it was a deep psychological problem, change. And this was difficult to communicate because uh, many of the older generation still had the instinct, uh, if we are doing something militarily, this will not be appreciated by our neighbors. It will be seen as being a rival of German militarism, and they were uh, concerned that this... Uh, this perspective would again come up. And then there was another element which is also was deep in the uh, an element of the instinct that their experience of war was Germans started it and ended on their soil. So it was always when you participate in a war that in the final end the war would be fought out on your soil. This is a very different experience than Americans have. You had, had expeditionary wars. Right. Had had uh, in the World War One and in World War Two, they had wars which took place on the soil of others, their neighbors, but in the end also on their own soil, especially in World War, at the end of World War Two. So this traditional, and Germany, you have called Germany a generator of stability, and that's been a role that it has grown into in the latter half of the 20th century, and obviously in the 21st century. Would you say that? Uh, your intervention in Bosnia helped generate more stability for Europe. And do you think that there was fallout for your support of that that led uh, to your leaving the Bundestag after a uh, 20 year, 22 year career there? I mean, I was fighting for it. I was in the first period, I was in the minority in my uh, parliamentary fraction. I later on got the majority in the faction, but I still had problems in my constituency. But that you have to decide. If you are, do you want only to keep your job, or do you also fight for some ideas? I was standing for my ideas, and finally this was also respected uh, by many of my other colleagues in Parliament, because otherwise I would not have been nominated after I left Parliament for more than 10 years in different coalitions to, be, uh, to take over the task of German-American coordinator in the Foreign Office. So speaking about your post-electoral um, uh, career and in light of our having uh, arrived towards the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you to answer a final two-part question, which is to speak to your former constituency about uh, why it is that you have chosen to serve both in elected office and uh, for nearly equal amount of time uh, in appointed non-elected positions to advance the public interest? And what do you hope will be your legacy uh, to the people of your constituency, to the German people? What is it that has motivated you and what is it that you are leaving behind as a result of the work that you have done? First of all, I think it's quite interesting that in the last two or three years, I've been invited more than the years before to my constituency in Frankfurt to give lectures and to, to take part in discussions about foreign policy issues. And I, I mean, this is quite remarkable. I left Parliament in 98, and now we have, uh, it's 20 years later, and uh, uh, still people remember me in my constituency, and still people respect me as, even if they have different views, 
as somebody who tries to be honest and tries to explain his position and tries uh, to uh, discuss his position with them. And, and uh, this is an element of political culture of which I think I can be proud of. Beyond that, I think that um, uh, the development of the foreign policy line of the Social Democratic Party in general terms and on some specific issues like policy on Russia, policy on the United States, policy on uh, taking part in uh, interventionist missions as part of the UN or as part of NATO or as part of the European Union. There, I, I think that I have uh, had an impact. I would not have, could not have changed the line of the party alone. But uh, even nowadays, uh, people remember what I've been doing and uh, sometimes they are speaking with me with high respect. And uh, I'm, uh, that's why I was uh, nominated, I still am in this position, uh, as a member of the board of the German Council on, Federal, on Foreign Policy of the German Aspen Institute and a couple of other foreign policy related institutions. So it's not that, my, uh, I mean, my most active part is over. But the ideas on which I'm working are still alive, and I'm still active in this field. And that has been Karsten Falk, a former member of the Bundestag, a coordinator of the German-North American Cooperation at Germany's Foreign Office, former foreign policy spokesman and president of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, who speaks about his time in public service as one characterized by honesty, integrity, the pursuit of ideas over ambition, and a willingness to explain his own position, even if it differs with that of his constituency. He mentions uh, how he has argued in favor of uh, his focus on foreign policy, even if those aren't the issues that his constituents feel hit closest to their hearts, uh, and his willingness to explain his positions uh, of difference even within his own party, given the example of German intervention in the Balkan Wars in the late 90s, which the SPD uh, had opposed at the time. He says as a result of his work in advancing the public interest, he has impacted the SPD party platform, and he stands today uh, to German youth and the German public in general as someone who's willing to truly uh, put him, put the public first ahead of his own interests uh, in seeking to make Germany a better place for everyone. And clearly his earnest pursuit of his conception of the public interest has garnered public support regardless of whether individuals agree with him on particular policy issues or not. So Carson, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, leave a review of this podcast on iTunes, and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.